Hello everybody and welcome back to our audiobook series on the Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. Yes, finally today I'm going to go ahead and finish it for everybody. I am sorry that this uh, last recording here took so, so, so long. I can't really explain it, but it's been an extremely busy and crazy past few weeks here. But enough about that. Let's go ahead and get into Article 10 here as we start up and finish this all in one go. So, Article 10, the ecclesiastical rites that are called adiaphora, or things indifferent. There has also been a controversy among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning ceremonies and church rites which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but which have been introduced into the church with good intentions for the sake of good order and decorum, or else to preserve Christian discipline. The one party held that even in a period of persecution and a case of confession, when enemies of the Holy Gospel have not come to an agreement with us in doctrine, one may still, with a clear conscience at the enemy's insistent demand, restore once more certain abrogated ceremonies that are in themselves matters of indifference, and that are neither commanded nor forbidden by God, and that one may justifiably conform oneself to them in such adiaphora or matters of indifference. The other party, however, contended that under no circumstances can this be done with a clear conscience, and without prejudice to the divine truth, even as far as things indifferent are concerned, in a period of persecution and a case of confession, especially when the adversaries are attempting either by force and coercion or by surreptitious methods to suppress the pure doctrine and gradually to insinuate their false doctrines into our churches again. To explain this controversy, and to settle it definitively by the grace of God, we offer the Christian reader the following exposition. We should not consider as matters of indifference, and we should avoid as forbidden by God, ceremonies which are basically contrary to the word of God, even though they go under the name and guise of external adiaphora and are given a different color from their true one. Nor do we include among truly free adiaphora, or things indifferent, those ceremonies which give, or to avoid persecution, are designed to give the impression that our religion does not differ greatly from that of the Papists, or that we are not seriously opposed to it. Nor are such rites matters of indifference when these ceremonies are intended to create the illusion, or are demanded or agreed to with that intention, that these two opposing religions have been brought into agreement and become one body, or that a return to the papacy and an apostasy from the pure doctrine of the gospel and from true religion has taken place or will allegedly result little by little from these ceremonies. In this case, the words of Paul must be heeded. Do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Therefore come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 17. Neither are useless and foolish spectacles which serve neither good order, Christian discipline, nor evangelical decorum in the church, true adiaphora, or things indifferent. We believe, teach, and confess that true adiaphora, or things indifferent, as defined above, 
are in and of themselves no worship of God or even a part of it, but that we should duly distinguish between the two as it is written. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrine for doctrines the precepts of men. Matthew 15, verse 9. We further believe, teach, and confess that the community of God in every place and at every time has the right authority and power to change, to reduce, or to increase ceremonies according to its circumstances, as long as it does so without frivolity and offense, but in an orderly and appropriate way, as at any time may seem to be most profitable, beneficial, and salutary for good order, Christian discipline, evangelical decorum, and the edification of the church. Paul instructs us on how we can, with a good conscience, give in and yield to the weak in faith in such external matters of indifference, uh, Romans 14, and demonstrates it by his own example, Acts 16, verse 3, 21, verse 26, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10. We believe, teach, and confess that at a time of confession, as when enemies of the word of God desire to suppress the pure doctrine of the holy gospel, the entire community of God, yes, every individual Christian, and especially the ministers of the word as the leaders of the community of God, are obligated to confess openly, not only by words, but also through their deeds and actions, the true doctrine and all that pertains to it according to the word of God. In such a case, we should not yield to adversaries even in matters of indifference, nor should we tolerate the imposition of such ceremonies on us by adversaries in order to undermine the genuine worship of God, and to introduce and confirm their idolatry by force or chicanery. It is written, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5 verse 1. And again, but because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul is here speaking of circumcision, which at that time was a matter of indifference, and which in his Christian liberty he employed in other instances, Acts 16, verse 3. But when false prophets demanded circumcision and abused it to confirm their false doctrine, that the works of the law are necessary for righteousness and salvation, Paul said that he would not yield, not even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Thus, Paul yielded and gave in to the weak as far as foods, times, and days were concerned, Romans 14, verse 6. But he would not yield to false apostles who wanted to impose such things on consciences as necessary, even in matters that were in themselves indifferent. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, Colossians 2, verse 16. When Peter and Barnabas, in a similar situation, yielded to a certain extent, Paul criticized them publicly because they had not been straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2 verse 14. For here we are no longer dealing with the external adiaphora, which in their nature and essence are and remain of themselves free, and which accordingly are not subject either to a command or a prohibition, requiring us to use them or discontinue them. Here we are dealing primarily with the chief article of our Christian faith, so that 
as the apostle testifies, the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Galatians 2 verse 5. Any coercion or commandment darkens and perverts this article because the adversaries will forthwith publicly demand such matters of indifference to confirm false doctrines, superstition, and idolatry, and to suppress the pure doctrine in Christian liberty, or they will misuse them and misinterpret them in this direction. At the same time, this concerns the article of Christian liberty as well, an article which the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of the Holy Apostle, so seriously commanded the church to preserve, as we have just heard. As soon as this article is weakened and human commandments are forcibly imposed on the church as necessary and as though their omission were wrong and sinful, the door has been opened to idolatry and ultimately the commandments of men will be increased and be put as divine worship not only on a par with God's commandment but even above them. Hence, yielding or conforming in external things where Christian agreement in doctrine has not previously been achieved will support the idolaters in their idolatry. And on the other hand, it will sadden and scandalize true believers and weaken them in their faith. As he values his soul's welfare and salvation, every Christian is obligated to avoid both. As it is written, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Matthew 18, verse 7. And again, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it were better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 18, verse 6. We are to be particularly mindful that Christ says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, verse 32. The following testimonies drawn from the Schmalkald articles, which were drafted and adopted in 1537, show that this has consistently been the conviction and the confession of the chief teachers of the Augsburg Confession concerning such matters of indifference, and we who are walking in their footsteps intend by the grace of God to abide by this their confession. The Schmalkald Articles of 1537 declare on this, We do not concede to the Papists, the Papist bishops, that they are the church, for they are not. Nor shall we pay any attention to what they command or forbid in the name of the church, for, thank God, a seven-year-old child knows what the church is, namely holy believers and sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd, and so forth. Just before this, the Schmalkald Articles declare, If the bishops were true bishops, and were concerned about the church and the gospel, they might be permitted, for the sake of love and humility, but not of necessity, to ordain and confirm us as their preachers, provided this could be done without pretense, humbug, and unchristian ostentation. However, they neither are nor wish to be true bishops. They are temporal lords and princes who are unwilling to preach or teach or baptize or administer communion or discharge any office or work in the church. More than that, they expel, persecute, and condemn those who have been called to do these things. Yet the church must not be deprived of ministers on their account. Under the article on the primer, primacy or lordship of the Pope, the Schmalkald articles state, quote, Just as we cannot adore the devil himself as our Lord or God, so we cannot suffer his apostle, the Pope or Antichrist, to govern us as our head or Lord. For deception, murder, and the eternal destruction of body and soul are characteristic of his papal government. In the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, 
which constitutes an appendix to the Schmalkald articles in which all the theologians assembled in Schmalkald subscribed with their own hands, we find the following statement. Quote, No one should assume lordship or authority over the church, nor burden the church with traditions, nor let anybody's authority count for more than the word of God. Shortly after, since this is the situation, all Christians ought to beware of becoming participants in the impious doctrines, blasphemies, and unjust cruelties of the Pope. They ought rather abandon and execrate the Pope and his adherents as the kingdom of Antichrist. Christ commanded, beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, verse 15. Paul also commanded that ungodly teachers should be shunned and execrated as accursed. And he wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? To dissent from the consensus of so many nations, and to be called schismatic, is a serious matter. But divine authority commands us all not to be associated with, and not to support, impiety and unjust cruelty. End quote. In a special opinion, Dr. Luther exhaustively instructs the Church of God on how we are to treat ceremonies in general and matters of indifference in particular. He did the same again in 1530. From this exposition, everyone can learn what a Christian community, each individual Christian, and particularly the preachers, may or may not do with a clear conscience in matters of indifference, especially in a period of confession, so that they do not provoke the wrath of God, violate love, confirm the enemies of God's word, and scandalize the weak in faith. 1. Therefore, we reject and condemn as wrongful the view that the commandments of men are to be considered as of themselves worship of God or a part thereof. 2. We also reject and condemn as wrongful the procedure whereby such commandments are imposed by force on the community of God as necessary. 3. We reject and condemn as wrongful the opinion of those who hold that in a period of persecution we may yield to enemies of the Holy Gospel or conform to their practices, since this serves to imperil the truth. 4. Likewise, we hold it to be a culpable sin when in a period of persecution anything is done in deed or action to please enemies of the Gospel, contrary and in opposition to the Christian confession whether in things indifferent, in doctrine, or in whatever else pertains to religion. 5. We also reject and condemn the procedure whereby matters of indifference are abolished in such a way as to give the impression that the community of God does not have the liberty to use one or more ceremonies at any time and place, according to its circumstances, as may in Christian liberty be most beneficial to the church. 6. In line with the above churches will not condemn each other because of a difference in ceremonies when in Christian liberty one uses fewer or more of them, as long as they are otherwise agreed in doctrine and in all its articles and are also agreed concerning the right use of the holy sacraments, according to the well-known axiom, disagreement in fasting should not dis uh, destroy agreement in faith. And that's from uh, Irenaeus against a victor of Rome in Eusebius's church history. And now we move on then to Article 11. And this is where we separate Lutherans from Calvinists and Baptists and Arminians. Article 11, Eternal Foreknowledge and Divine Election. 
There has been no public, scandalous, and widespread dissension among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning the eternal election of the children of God. Nevertheless, this article has become the occasion of very serious controversies at other places and has involved our people also. Nor have our theologians always used the same terms. Therefore, in order by God's grace to prevent, as far as we can, disunity and schism in this article among our posterity, we have determined to set forth our explanation of this article in this document so that all men may know that what we teach, believe, and confess in this article. If the teaching of this article is set forth out of the divine word, and according to the example it provides, it neither can nor should be considered useless and unnecessary, still less offensive and detrimental, because the Holy Scriptures mention this article not only once, and as it were in passing, but discuss and present it in detail in many places. In the same way, one must not bypass or reject a teaching of the divine word because some people misuse and misunderstand it. On the contrary, precisely in order to avert such misuse and misunderstanding, we must set forth the correct meaning on the basis of scripture. Accordingly, the net total and content of the teaching on this article consists of the following points. At the very outset, we must carefully note the difference between God's eternal foreknowledge and the eternal election of his children to eternal salvation. For the fact that God sees and knows everything before it happens, what we call God's foreknowledge, extends to all creatures, good and evil. He sees and knows in advance all that is or shall be, all that happens or will happen, both good or evil, since all things, present or future, are manifest and present to God. As it is written, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Matthew 10, verse 29. Again, thine eyes beheld my unformed substance, in thy book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, verse 16. And again, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Isaiah 37, verse 28. On the other hand, the eternal election of God or God's predestination to salvation does not extend over both the godly and the ungodly, but only over the children of God who have been elected and predestined to eternal life. Quote, before the foundation of the world was laid, as St. Paul says, even as he chose us in him, he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. God's foreknowledge, prescientia, sees and knows in advance the evil as well, but not in such a way as though it were God's gracious will that it should happen. To be sure, he sees and knows beforehand whatever the perverse and wicked will of the devil and of men will attempt and do. But even in wicked acts and works, God's foreknowledge operates in such a way that God sets a limit and measure for the evil which he does not will, how far it is to go, how long it is to endure, and when and how he will interfere with it and punish it. For the Lord God governs everything in such a way that it must rebound to the glory of his divine name and the salvation of his elect, and thereby the ungodly are confounded. The source and cause of evil is not God's foreknowledge, since God neither creates nor works evil, nor does he help it along and promote it. 
but rather the wicked and perverse will of the devil and of men, as it is written, Israel, thou hast plunged thyself into misfortune, but in me alone is thy salvation, Hosea 13, verse 9. Likewise, thou art not a God who delights in wickedness, Psalm 5, verse 4. God's eternal election, however, not only foresees and foreknows the salvation of the elect, but by God's gracious will and pleasure in Christ Jesus, it is also a cause which creates, affects, helps, and furthers our salvation in whatever pertains to it. Our salvation is based on it in such a way that the gates of Hades are not able to do anything against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. As it is written, No one shall snatch my sheep out of my hand. John 10, verse 28. And again, as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Acts 13 verse 48. Furthermore, we are not to view this eternal election or divine ordering to eternal life only in the secret and inscrutable counsel of God, as though it comprised no more and that nothing more is involved in it, or that nothing more is to be considered in connection with it than that God has foreseen who and how many are to be saved and who and how are many are to be damned. Or that he merely held a sort of military muster. This one shall be saved, that one shall be damned, this one shall persevere, this one shall not persevere. Such a view, however, leads many to draw and formulate strange, dangerous, and pernicious opinions. And causes and fortifies in people's minds either false security and impenitence, or anxiety and despair. As a result, they trouble themselves with burdensome doubts and say, since God has foreordained his elect to salvation before the foundations of the world were laid, and since God's foreknowledge can never fail and no one can ever change or hinder it, therefore, if I have been foreknown to salvation, it will do me no harm if I live in all kinds of sin and vice without repentance, despise word and sacraments, and do not concern myself with repentance, faith, prayer, and godliness, on the contrary, I shall and must be saved, since God's foreknowledge must be carried out. But if I am not foreknown, then everything is in vain. Even though I were to hold to the word, repent, believe, and more, since I cannot hinder or alter God's foreknowledge. And such thoughts may well come to pious hearts, too. Even though by the grace of God they have repentance, faith, and the good resolve to lead a godly life. Especially when they see their own weakness and the example of such as did not persevere, but fell away again. They may think, if you are not foreknown to salvation from eternity, everything is in vain. We must oppose such false imagining and thoughts with the following clear, certain, and unfailing foundation. All scripture, inspired by God, should minister not to security and impenitence, but to reproof, correction, and improvement. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Furthermore, Everything in the word of God is written down for us, not for the purpose of thereby driving us to despair, but in order that by steadfastness, by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15 verse 4. From this, it is beyond all doubt that the true understanding or the right use of the teaching of God's eternal foreknowledge will in no way cause or support either impenitence or despair. So, too, Scripture presents this doctrine in no other way than to direct us thereby to the Word. Ephesians 1, verse 13 for, uh, and 14. 
1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, verse 30, and verse 31. To admonish us to repent, 2 Timothy 3.16. To urge us to godliness, Ephesians 1 verse 15, John 15 verse 16, verse 17, 3, 4, 10, and 12. To strengthen our faith and to assure us of our salvation, Ephesians 1 verse 9, verse 13, and verse 14. John 10 verses 27 through 30. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. Hence, if we wish to think or speak correctly and profitably about eternal election, or about the predestination and ordering of the children of God to eternal life, we should accustom ourselves not to speculate concerning the absolute, secret, hidden, and inscrutable foreknowledge of God. On the contrary, we should consider the counsel, purpose, and ordinance of God in Christ Jesus, who is the genuine and true book of life as it is revealed to us through the word. This means that we must always take as one unit the entire doctrine of God's purpose, counsel, will, and ordinance concerning our redemption, call, justification, and salvation, as Paul treats and explains this article, Romans 8 verse 28 and Ephesians 1 verse 4, and as Christ likewise does in the parable, Matthew 20 verses 2 through 14. Namely, that in his purpose and counsel, God has ordained the following. 1. That through Christ, the human race has truly been redeemed and reconciled with God, and that by his innocent obedience, suffering, and death, Christ has earned for us the righteousness which avails before God and eternal life. 2. That this merit and these benefits of Christ are to be offered, given, and distributed to us through his word and sacraments. 3. That he would be effective and active in us by his Holy Spirit through the word when it is preached, heard, and meditated on, would convert hearts to true repentance, and would enlighten them in the true faith. 4. That he would justify and graciously accept into the adoption of children and into the inheritance of eternal life all who in sincere repentance and true faith accept Christ. 5. That he would also sanctify in love all who are thus justified, as St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. 6. That he would also protect them in their great weakness against the devil, the world, and the flesh, guide and lead them in his ways, raise them up again when they stumble, and comfort and preserve them in tribulation and temptation. 7. That he would also strengthen and increase them in the good work which he has begun, and preserve them unto the end. If they cling to God's word, pray diligently, persevere in the grace of God, and use faithfully the gifts that they have received. 8. That... Finally, he would eternally save and glorify in eternal life those whom he has elected, called, and justified. In this, his eternal counsel, purpose, and ordinance, God has not only prepared salvation in general, but he has also graciously considered and elected to salvation each and every individual among the elect who are to be saved through Christ, and also ordained that in the manner just recounted, he wills by his grace, gifts, and effective working to bring them to salvation and to help, further, strengthen, and preserve them to this end. According to the scriptures, all this is included in the teaching of the eternal election of God to adoption into eternal salvation. It should be understood as included therein and never be excluded or omitted when we speak of the purpose, foreknowledge, election, and ordinances of God to eternal salvation. When we follow the scriptures and organize our thinking about this article in this light, 
we can, by the grace of God, easily orient ourselves in it. An answer to the following question is necessary for the further exposition and the salutary use of the teaching of God's foreknowledge to salvation. Since the elect, whose names are written in the book of life, will be saved, how can and should one know, and wherefrom and thereby can and should one discover who the elect are, and who can and should comfort themselves with this teaching? We should not pass judgment on the basis of our reason, or on the basis of the law, but or on the basis of some outward appearance. Neither should we permit ourselves to try to explore the secret and hidden abyss of divine foreknowledge. Instead, we must heed to the revealed will of God, for he has revealed and made known to us the mystery of his will, and has brought it forth through Christ so that it should be preached. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 and then 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 11. This is revealed to us, however, as Paul says, those whom God has foreknown, elected, and decreed, he has also called. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Now God does not call without means, but through the word, as indeed he has commanded the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins. St. Paul testified to the same effect when he wrote, We are ambassadors in Christ's stead, and God is admonishing you through us. Be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. In the guests whom the king invites to his son's wedding, he calls through the messengers whom he sent out. Some at the first, some at the second, at the third, at the sixth, at the ninth, and even at the eleventh hour. Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16 and 22 verses 2 through 14. Hence, if we want to consider our eternal election to salvation profitably, we must by all means cling rigidly and firmly to the fact that as the proclamation of repentance extends over all men, Luke 24 verse 47, so also does the promise of the gospel. Therefore, Christ has commanded to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name among all nations. For God loved the world and gave to it his only begotten Son, John 3.16. Christ has taken away the sin of the world, John 1, verse 29. He has given his flesh for the life of the world, John 6, verse 51. His blood is the propitiation for the whole world. Um, that is 1 John 1, verse 7 and 2, verse 2. Christ declares, Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight, And uh, God has included all men under disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Romans uh, 11, verse 32. The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should return to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He is simultaneously one Lord of all, rich toward all who call upon him. Romans 10, verse 12. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. Romans 3 verse 22. This is the will of the Father that all who believe on Christ should have eternal life. John 6 verse 40. It is Christ's command that all in common to whom repentance is preached should also have this promise of the gospel proclaimed to them. Luke 24 verse 47 and Mark 16 verse 15. And we should not regard this call of God which takes place through the preaching of the word as a deception, but should know certainly that God reveals his will in this way, and that in those whom he thus calls he will be efficaciously active through the word so that they may be illuminated, converted, and saved. 
For the word through which we are called is a ministry of the Spirit, which gives the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 8, and the power of God to save, Romans 1, verse 16. And because the Holy Spirit wills to be efficacious through the word to strengthen us and to give us power and ability, it is God's will that we should accept the word, believe, and obey it. The elect are therefore described as follows. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. John 10, verses 27 and 28. And they who are decreed according to God's purpose to the inheritance, hear the gospel, believe on Christ, pray and give thanks, are sanctified in love, have hope, patience, and comfort in afflictions. Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 13, and Romans 8, verse 25. Though this is still very weak in them, they nevertheless hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6. Thus the Spirit of God gives witness to the elect that they are the children of God. And when they do not know how to pray as we ought, he intercedes for them with inexpressible groanings. Romans 18, verses 16 through 26. Sorry, Romans 8, verses 16 through 26. In the same vein, Holy Scripture also assures us that God who has called us will be so faithful that after he has begun the good work in us, he will also continue it to the end and complete it, if we ourselves do not turn away from him, but hold fast until the end, the substance which has been begun in us. For such constancy, he has promised his grace. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Philippians 1 verse 6, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, and Hebrews 3 verse 14. We should concern ourselves with this revealed will of God. Follow it and be diligent about it because the Holy Spirit gives grace, power, and ability through the word by which he has called us. We should not explore the abyss of the hidden foreknowledge of God. Even as Christ answered the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? By saying, strive to enter by the narrow door. Luke 13 verses 23 and 24. Luther puts it this way. Follow the order in the epistle to the Romans. Concern yourself first with Christ and his gospel so that you learn to know your sins and his grace. Then take up the warfare against sin as Paul teaches from the first to the eighth chapter. Afterward, when the, in the eighth chapter you are tested under the cross and in tribulation, the ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapters will show you how comforting God's foreknowledge is. The reason why many are called and few are chosen, uh, that is uh, Matthew twenty sixteen and 22 verse 14, is not that in his call which takes place through the word God intended to say, externally I do indeed through the word of God call all of you to whom I give my word into my kingdom, but down in my heart I am not thinking of all, but only of a certain few. For it is my will that the majority of those whom I call through the word are not to be illuminated or converted, but are to be and remain under condemnation, although I speak differently in my call to them. End quote. In this way, it would be taught that God, who is the eternal truth, contradicts himself. Yet God himself punishes men for such wickedness when they say one thing and think and intend something different in their hearts. Psalm 5, verse 10 and 11 and 12, verse 3 and 4. This would also completely undermine and totally destroy for us the nece necessary and comforting foundation which daily reminds and admonishes us to learn and to determine God's will toward us, and what assures us and promises it to us solely from his word, through which he deals with us and calls us 
so that we should believe it with absolute certainty and not doubt it in the least. For this reason, Christ has the promises of the gospel offered not only in general, but also through the sacraments, which he has attached as a seal of the promise and by which he conforms it or confirms it to every believer individually. For that reason also, as the Augsburg Confession states in Article 11, we retain individual absolution and teach that it is God's command that we believe this absolution and firmly hold that when we believe the word of absolution, we are as truly reconciled with God as if we had heard a voice from heaven. As the Apology explains this article, we would be deprived of this comfort completely if we could not determine God's will toward us from the call which comes to us through the word and through the sacraments. This would also overturn and destroy for us the foundation, namely that the Holy Spirit wills to be certainly present with and efficacious and active through the word when it is proclaimed, heard, and meditated upon. Hence, as was mentioned before, there is no basis for the assumption that those might be the elect who despise God's word and who reject, blaspheme, and persecute it. Matthew 22, verse 5 and 6, Acts 13, verse 40 and verse 46. Or who harden their hearts when they hear it. Hebrews 4, verses 2 and 7. Resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7, verse 51. Remain in sin without repentance. Luke 14, verse 18 and verse 24. Do not truly believe in Christ. Mark 16, verse 16. Make only an outward pretense. Matthew 7, verse 15 and 22, verse 12. Or seek other ways to righteousness and salvation outside of Christ. Romans 9, verse uh, verse 31. On the contrary, as God has ordained in his counsel that the Holy Spirit would call, enlighten, and convert the elect through the word, and that he would justify and save all who accept Christ through true faith, so he has also ordained in his counsel that he would harden, reject, and condemn all who, when they are called through the word, spurn the word, and persistently resist the Holy Spirit, who wants to work efficaciously in them through the word. In this sense, many are called, but few are chosen. For few accept the word and obey it. The majority despise the word and refuse to come to the wedding. The reason for such contempt of the word of God is not God's foreknowledge, but man's own perverse will, which rejects or perverts the means and instrument of the Holy Spirit, which God offers to him through the call and resists the Holy Spirit, who wills to be efficaciously active through the word, as Christ says, How often would I have gathered you together, and you would not. Matthew 23, verse 37. In the same way, many receive the word with joy, but after that they fall away again. Luke 8, verse 13. But the reason for this is not that God does not want to impart the grace of perseverance to those in whom he has begun the good work. This would contradict St. Paul in Philippians 1, verse 6. The reason is that they willfully turn away from the Holy Commandment, grieve and embitter the Holy Spirit, become entangled again in the filth of the world, and decorate their hearts as a tabernacle for the devil, so that their last state will be worse than the first. Second Peter 2 verse 10, Luke 11, 24 and 25, Hebrews 10 verse 26, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 11 and verse 18. Thus far, God has revealed the mystery of foreknowledge to us in his word. If we stay with this and hold ourselves thereto, it is indeed a useful, salutary, and comforting doctrine. 
for it mightily substantiates the article that we are justified and saved without our works and merit, purely by grace and solely for Christ's sake. Before the creation of time, before the foundation of the world was laid, Ephesians 1 verse 4, before we even existed, before we were able to have done any good, God elected us to salvation according to his purpose by grace in Christ, Romans 9 verse 11 and 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. This also completely refutes all false opinions and erroneous doctrines about the powers of our natural will. For in his counsel, God has determined and decreed before the world began that by the power of his Holy Spirit, through the word, he would create and effect in us everything that belongs to our conversion. This doctrine also affords the beautiful and glorious comfort that God was so deeply concerned about every individual Christian's conversion, righteousness, and salvation, and so faithfully minded about it that even before the foundation of the world was laid, he held counsel and ordained according to his purpose, how he would bring me thereto and keep me therein. Furthermore, God wanted to ensure my salvation so firmly and certainly, for due to the weakness and wickedness of our flesh, it could easily slip from our fingers. And through the deceit and power of the devil in the world, it could easily be snatched and taken from our hands. That he ordained my salvation in his eternal purpose, which cannot fail or be overthrown, and put it for safekeeping into the almighty hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ, out of which no one can pluck us. John 10, verse 28. For this reason, too, Paul asks, since we are called according to the purpose of God, who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Romans 8, verse 35. This doctrine will also give us the glorious comfort in times of trial and affliction that in his counsel before the foundation of the world, God has determined and decreed that he will assist us in all our necessities, grant us patience, give us comfort, create hope, and bring everything to such an issue that we shall be saved. Again, Paul presents this in a most comforting manner when he points out that before the world began, God ordained in his counsel through which the specific cross and affliction he would conform each of his elect to the image of his son, and that in each case the afflictions should and must work together for good since they are called according to his purpose. From this, Paul draws the certain and indubitable conclusion that neither tribulation nor anguish, neither death nor life, etc., can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 28 and 29, verses 35, 38, and 39. This article also gives a glorious testimony that the church of God shall exist and remain against all the gates of Hades. At the same time, it teaches us what the true church is, lest we be offended by the outward prestige of the false church. Romans 9, verse 8. This article also contains mighty admonitions and warnings. Among others, they despise the counsel of God against themselves. Luke 7, verse 30. I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Luke 14, verse 24. Likewise, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14. Likewise, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and take heed how ye hear. Luke 8, verse 8 and 8, verse 18. Thus, it is possible to use the teaching in this article in a profitable, comforting, and salutary way. We must, however, 
carefully distinguish between what God has expressly revealed in his word and what he has not revealed. Beyond the matters which have been revealed in Christ, and of which we have spoken thus far, there are many points in this mystery about which God has remained silent, in which he is not revealed, but has kept reserved solely to his own wisdom and knowledge. We are not to pry into these, nor are we to follow our own thoughts in this matter, and draw our own conclusions and brood, but we are to adhere exclusively to the revealed word. This admonition is eminently necessary. In our presumption, we take much greater delight in concerning ourselves with uh, matters which we cannot harmonize. In fact, we have no command to do so. Then with those aspects of the question which God has revealed to us in his word. Thus there is no doubt that before the world began, God foresaw right well and with utter certainty and that he still knows who of those uh, you know who of those who are called will believe and who will not likewise who of the converted will persevere and who will not persevere and who after falling away will return and who will become obdurate God is also aware and knows exactly how many there will be on either side but because God has reserved this mystery to his own wisdom and not revealed anything concerning it in the word, still less has commanded us to explore it through our speculations, but has earnestly warned against it. Romans 11 verse 33, Therefore we are not, on the basis of our speculations, to make our own deductions, draw conclusions, or brood over it, but cling solely to his revealed word to which he directs us. Without doubt, God also knows and has determined for each person the time and hour of his call and conversion. But since he has not revealed this to us, we must obey his command and operate constantly with the word while we leave the time and hour to God. Acts 1 verse 7. The same applies when we observe that God gives his word at one place and not at another. That he removes it from one place but lets it remain at another or that one becomes hardened, blinded, and is given over to a perverse mind, while another in equal guilt is again converted. God, or Paul sets a definite limit for us as to how far we should go in these and similar questions, Romans 9 verse 14 and 11 verse 22. In this case, in the case of the one group, we are to see God's judgment. It is indeed a well-deserved punishment for sin, when God so severely punishes a land or a people for contempt of his word, that the punishment extends also to their posterity, as with the Jews. Thus, in the history of some nations, in some persons, God shows his own people what all of us would rightly, rightfully have deserved, earned, and merited, because we misbehave over against God's word and often sorely grieve the Holy Spirit. This will lead us to live in the fear of God and to recognize and glorify God's goodness to us without and contrary to our deserving, to whom he gives and preserves his word and whom he does not harden and reject. Since our nature is corrupted by sin and is worthy and deserving of God's wrath and damnation, God owes us neither his word nor his spirit nor his grace. In fact, when he does graciously give us these, we frequently cast them from us and make ourselves unworthy of eternal life. Acts 13 verse 46. But God permits us to behold his righteous and well-deserved judgment over certain lands, nations, and people, so that as we compare ourselves with them and find ourselves in the same condemnation, 
we may learn the more diligently to recognize and praise God's pure and unmerited grace toward the vessels of mercy, Romans 9, verse 23, and 11, verse 5. No injustice is done to those who are punished and receive the wages of sin. In the case of the others, however, to whom God gives and preserves his word, whereby he enlightens, converts, and keeps them, God commends his pure and unmerited grace and mercy. If we go thus far in this article, we will remain on the right path. As it is written, O Israel, it is your own fault that you are destroyed, but that there is help for you is pure grace on my part. Hosea 13 verse 9. But whenever something in the discussion of this subject soars too high and goes beyond these limits, we must with Paul place our finger on our lips and say, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Uh, Romans 9 verse 20. The great Apostle Paul shows us that we cannot and should not try to explore and explain everything in this article. After a lengthy discussion of this article on the basis of the revealed word of God, as soon as he comes to the point where he shows how much of this mystery God has reserved for his own hidden wisdom, Paul immediately commands silence and cuts off further discussion with the following words, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's uh, Romans 11, verses 33 and 34. That is, outside and beyond what he has revealed to us in his word. We should accordingly consider God's eternal election in Christ, and not outside of or apart from Christ. For according to St. Paul's testimony, we have been elected in Christ before the foundation of the world was laid, Ephesians 1 verse 4. As it is written, he has loved us in the beloved, Ephesians 1 verse 6. This election is revealed from heaven through the proclaimed word when the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Luke 3 verse 22. And Christ says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11 verse 28. And of the Holy Spirit, Christ says, He will glorify me. John 16 verse 14. And recall everything to you that I have told you. Thus, the entire Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, directs all men to Christ, as to the book of life in whom they are to seek the Father's eternal election. For the Father has decreed from eternity that whomever he would save, he would save through Christ. As Christ himself says, no one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, verse 6. And again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, verse 9. Christ, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, John 1 verse 18, has proclaimed the Father's will and thereby our eternal election to or eternal election to eternal life when he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1 verse 15. And again when he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 6, verse 40. And again, God so loved the world, and so forth. John three sixteen. The Father wills that all men should hear this proclamation and come to Christ. And according to his own word, Christ will not turn them away. Him who comes to me, I will not cast out. John 6, verse 37. In order that we may come to Christ, the Holy Spirit creates true faith through the hearing of God's word, as the Apostle testifies. 
Faith comes by the hearing of God's word, Romans 10, verse 17. When it is preached in sincerity and purity, therefore let no one who wants to be saved should burden and torture himself with thoughts concerning the secret counsel of God if he has been elected and ordained to eternal life. With such thoughts, the troublesome adversary is accustomed to tempt and vex pious hearts. On the contrary, they should listen to Christ, who is the book of life, and of the eternal election of God's children to eternal life, and who testifies to all men uh, without distinction that God wants all men who are laden and burdened with sin to come to him and find refreshment and be saved. Matthew 11, verse 28. According to Christ's teaching, they are to desist from sin, repent, believe his promise, and trust in him completely and entirely. And since we are unable to do this by our own powers, the Holy Spirit wills to work such repentance and faith in us through the word and the sacraments. And in order that we may see it through and abide and persevere in it, we should implore God to give us his grace, of which he has assured us in holy baptism, and not doubt that according to his promise he will give it to us. We have his word. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11, verses 11 through 13. Next, since the Holy Spirit dwells in the elect who have come to faith as he dwells in his temple, and is not idle in them, but urges them to obey the commandments of God, believers likewise should not be idle still less oppose the urgings of the Spirit of God, but should exercise themselves in all Christian virtues, in all godliness, modesty, temperance, patience, and brotherly love, and should diligently seek to confirm their call and election, so that the more they experience the power and might of the Spirit within themselves, the less they will doubt their election. For the Spirit testifies to the elect that they are children of God, Romans 8, verse 16. And if perchance... They should fall into such grave temptation that they feel they are no longer experiencing any power, whatever, of the indwelling Spirit of God. And say with David, I had said in my alarm, I am driven far from thy sight. Psalm 31, verse 22. Then regardless of what they experience within themselves, they should nevertheless join David in the next words. But thou didst hear my supplications when I cried to thee for help. Psalm 31, verse 23. Our, eternal, our election to eternal life does not rest on our piety or virtue, but solely on the merit of Christ and the gracious will of the Father who cannot deny himself because he is changeless in his will and essence. Hence, when his children become disobedient and stumble, he arranges to recall them to repentance through the word, and through it the Holy Spirit wills to effect their conversion in them. If they return to him in true repentance through a right faith, he will always show the same old fatherly heart to all who tremble at his word and cordially return to him. As it is written, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, may he receive her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Lord. Jeremiah 3 verse 1. It is indeed correct and true what Scripture states, 
that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. John 6, verse 44. But the Father will not do this without means, and he has ordained word and sacraments as the ordinary means or instruments to accomplish this end. It is not the will of either the Father or the Son that anyone should refuse to hear or should despise the preaching of his word and should wait for the Father to draw him without word and sacrament. The Father indeed draws by the power of the Holy Spirit, but according to his common ordinance, he does this through the hearing of his holy divine word, as with a net by which he snatches the elect from the maw of the devil. Every poor sinner must therefore attend on it, hear it with diligence, and in no way doubt the drawing of the Father, because the Holy Spirit wills to be present in the word and to be efficacious with his power through it. And this is the drawing of the Father. The reason why all who hear the word do not come to faith and therefore receive the greater damnation is not that God did not want them to be saved. It is their own fault, because they heard the word of God not to learn, but only to despise, blaspheme, and ridicule it. And they resisted the Holy Spirit who wanted to work within them, as was the case with the Pharisees and their party at the time of Christ. Hence, Paul very carefully distinguishes between the work of God, who alone prepares vessels of honor, and the work of the devil and of man, who through the instigation of the devil and not of God has made himself a vessel of dishonor. It is written, God endured with much patience the vessels of wrath fitted for damnation in order to make known the riches of his glory in the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for salvation, Romans 9, 22 and 23. The apostle says in unmistakable terms that God endured the vessels of wrath with much patience. He does not say that God made them vessels of wrath. If that had been his will, he would not have needed any long suffering. The devil and man himself and not God are the cause of their being fitted for damnation. Everything which prepares and fits man for damnation emanates from the devil and man through sin, and in no way from God. Since God does not want any man to be damned, how could he prepare man for damnation? God is not the cause of sin, nor is he the cause of the punishment, the damnation. The only cause of man's damnation is sin, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 verse 23. And as God does not will sin and has no pleasure in sin, so he also does not will the death of a sinner and has no pleasure in his damnation. He does not will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. It is written in Ezekiel, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 and 33 verse 11. And St. Paul testifies with clear words that God's power and operation can transform the vessels of dishonor into vessels of honor when he writes, If anyone purifies himself from what is ignoble, then he will be a vessel for noble use, consecrated and useful to the master of the house, ready for any good work. 2 Timothy 2 verse 21. He who is to purify himself must beforehand have been impure, and therefore a vessel of dishonor. Concerning the vessels of mercy, he says specifically that the Lord himself has prepared them unto glory. 
He does not say this of the damned, whom God has not prepared, but who have prepared themselves to be vessels of damnation. It is to be considered diligently that God punishes sin with sin. That is, because of their subsequent impurity, impenitence, and deliberate sins, God punishes with obduracy and blindness those who have been converted. This must not be misconstrued as if it had never been God's gracious will that such people should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. God's revealed will involves both items. First, that he would receive into grace all who repent and believe in Christ. Second, that he would punish those who deliberately turn away from the holy commandment and involve themselves again in the filth of this world. 2 Peter 2 verse 20. Prepare their hearts for Satan. Luke 11, 24 and 25, and outrage the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 10, 29, and that he would harden, blind, and forever damn them if they continue therein. Hence Pharaoh, of whom we read, for this purpose have I let you live to show you my power, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus 9, verse 16, and Romans 9, verse 17, did not perish because God did not want to grant him salvation, or because it was God's good pleasure that he should be damned and lost. For God is not wishing that any should perish, nor has he any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. But that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that Pharaoh continued to sin and became the more obdurate the more he was admonished with it was a punishment for his preceding sin and his horrible tyranny with which he oppressed the children of Israel by many various and most inhuman devices contrary to the voice of his conscience. But after God arranged to have his word proclaimed and his will revealed to Pharaoh and he deliberately rebelled against all the admonition, uh, admonitions and warnings, God withdrew his hand from him. And so his heart became hardened and calloused, and God executed his judgment on him. For he was indeed guilty of hellfire. The holy apostle adduces Pharaoh's example for the sole purpose of thereby setting forth the righteousness of God, which God manifests towards the impenitent and despisers of his word. And in no way does he want us to infer that God had not wanted to grant Pharaoh or any other person eternal life. Or that in his secret counsel God had ordained him to eternal damnation so that he could not and might not be saved. This teaching and explanation of the eternal and saving election of the elect children of God gives God his due honor fully and completely. It sets forth that he saves us according to the purpose of his will through sheer mercy in Christ without our merit and good works. As it is written, he destined us in love to be his son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6. It is therefore false and wrong when men teach that the cause of our election is not only the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but that there is also within us a cause of God's election on account of which God has elected us unto eternal life. For not only before we had done any good, but even before we were born. In fact, before the foundation of the world was laid, as scripture says, God elected us in Christ in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the elder will serve the younger. 
as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9 verses 11 through 13, Genesis 25 verse 23, and Malachi 1 verse 2 and verse 3. Moreover, when people are taught to seek their eternal election in Christ and in his holy gospel as the book of life, this doctrine never occasions either despondency or a riotous and dissolute life. This does not exclude any repentant sinner, but invites and calls all poor, burdened, and heavy-laden sinners to repentance, to a knowledge of their sins, and to faith in Christ, and promises them the Holy Spirit to cleanse and renew them. This doctrine gives sorrowing and tempted people the permanently abiding comfort of knowing that their salvation does not rest in their own hands. If this were the case, then they would lose it more readily than Adam and Eve did in paradise. Yes, would be losing it every moment and hour. Their salvation rests in the gracious election of God, which he has revealed to us in Christ, out of whose hand no one can pluck us. John 10:28 and 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Hence, if anyone so sets forth this, cre this teaching concerning God's gracious election, that sorrowing Christians can find no comfort in it, but are driven to despair, or when impenitent sinners are strengthened in their malice, then it is clearly evident that this teaching is not being set forth according to the word and will of God, but according to reason and the suggestion of the wicked devil. For the apostle testifies that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15 verse 4. But it is certain that any interpretation of the scriptures which weakens or even removes this comfort and hope is contrary to the Holy Spirit's will and intent. We shall abide by this simple, direct, and useful exposition, which is permanently and well-grounded in God's revealed will. Uh, we shall avoid and flee all abstruse and specious questions and disputations, and we reject and condemn all those things which are contrary to these true, simple, and useful expositions. This will suffice concerning the controverted articles which have been disputed among theologians of the Augsburg Confession for many years, in which, have, in which some have erred and serious religious contentions have arisen. From our exposition, friends and foes may clearly understand that we have no intention, since we have no authority to do so, to yield anything of the eternal and unchangeable truth of God for the sake of temporal peace, tranquility, and outward harmony. Nor would such peace and harmony last, because it would be contrary to the truth, and actually intended for its suppression. Still less, by far, we are minded to whitewash or... Uh, cover up any falsification of true doctrine or any publicly condemned errors. We have a sincere delight in and deep love for true harmony and are cordially inclined and determined on our part to do everything in our power to further the same. We desire such harmony as will not violate God's honor, that will not detract anything from the divine truth of the Holy Gospel, that will not give place to the smallest error but will lead the poor sinner to true and sincere repentance, raise him up through faith, strengthen him in his new obedience, and thus justify and save him forever through the sole merit of Christ, and so forth. Article 12. Other factions and sects which never accepted the Augsburg Confession. 
As far as the sects and factions are concerned, which never accepted the Augsburg Confession, and to which we have not explicitly adverted in this statement of ours, such as the Anabaptists, the Schwenkfelders, and the New Arians and Anti-Trinitarians, whose errors all the churches of the Augsburg Confession have unanimously condemned. We had not for that reason intended to make special and detailed mention of them, although it now appears to be desirable. Our adversaries have made the effrontery to pretend and proclaim to the whole world that among our churches and their teachers there are not two preachers who are agreed in each and every article of the Augsburg Confession, but are so disunited that they themselves no longer know what the Augsburg Confession really is and what it really means. Therefore, it was our purpose not only to declare our unanimous opinion with a few bare words or our signatures, but to present a clear, lucid, and unmistakable exposition of all the articles which were in controversy among theologians of the Augsburg Confession. We wanted everyone to be able to see that we were not proposing or hiding anything with intent to deceive, and that our agreement was not a mere pretense, but that we wanted to help matters fundamentally. We wanted to set forth our position so clearly that our very adversaries would have to confess that in all these questions we abide by the true, simple, natural, and proper meaning of the Augsburg Confession, and we desire by God's grace to remain steadfastly in our commitment to this confession until we die. As far as our ministry is concerned, we do not propose to look on idly or stand by silently while something contrary to the word the to, sorry contrary to the Augsburg Confession is imported into our churches and schools in which the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has appointed us teachers and shepherds. Let no one as a result of our silence attribute to us the condemned errors of the aforementioned factions and sects. For the most part, they insinuated themselves secretly after the fashion of these spirits into those places and especially at those times where the pure word of the Holy Gospel was allowed neither room nor scope where the true teachers and confessors of the gospel were being persecuted, where the profound darkness of the papacy still reigned, and where the poor, simple people who were forced into contact with the open idolatry and false beliefs of the papacy unfortunately accepted in their innocence what called itself evangelical and was not papistic. We have not been able to refrain from witnessing publicly before all Christendom that we have no part or share in their errors, be they few or many, and that on the contrary, we reject and condemn all these errors as wrong, heretical, and contrary to our Christian and biblically-based Augsburg Confession. Erroneous Articles of the Anabaptists We reject and condemn the erroneous and heretical teaching of the Anabaptists which cannot be suffered or tolerated in the churches or in the body politic or in domestic society. They teach, one, that our righteousness before God does not depend alone on the sole obedience and merit of Christ, but in renewal and in our own piety in which we walk before God. But this piety rests for the greater part on their own peculiar precepts, and self-chosen spirituality is a new kind of monkery. Two, that unbaptized children are not sinners before God, but righteous and innocent, and hence in their innocence they will be saved without baptism, which they do not need. Thus they deny and reject the entire teaching of original sin and all that pertains thereto. Three, that children should not be baptized until they have achieved the use of reason and are able to make their own confession of faith. 
4. That the children of Christians, because they are born of Christians and believing parents, are holy and children of God, even without and prior to baptism. Therefore, they do not esteem infant baptism very highly and do not advocate it, contrary to the express words of the promise, which extends only to those who keep the covenant and do not despise it. Genesis 17, 4, verse 4 through 8, and 19 through 21. 5. Uh, that that is no truly Christian assembly or congregation in the midst of which st- sinners are still found. 6. That one may not hear or attend on a sermon in those temples in which the papistic mass has formerly been read. 7. That one is to have nothing to do with those ministers of the church who preach the gospel according to the Augsburg Confession and censure the errors of the Anabaptists. Neither may one serve them or work for them at all, but one is to flee and avoid them as people who pervert the word of God. 8. That in the New Testament era, government service is not a godly estate. 9. That no Christian can hold an office in the government with an inviolate conscience. 10. That no Christian may, with an inviolate conscience, use an office of the government against wicked persons as occasion may arise, nor may a subject call upon the government for help. 11. That a Christian cannot, with a good conscience, swear an oath before a court or pay oath-bound feudal homage to his prince or liege lord. 12. That the government cannot, with an inviolate conscience, impose the death penalty on evildoers. 13. That no Christian can, with a good conscience, hold or possess private property, but is obliged to give his property to the community. 14. That no Christian can, with a good conscience, be an innkeeper, a merchant, or a cutler. 15. That difference in faith is sufficient ground for married people to divorce each other, to go their separate ways, and to enter into a new marriage with another person of the same faith. 16. That Christ did not assume his flesh and blood from the Virgin Mary, but brought it along from heaven. 17. That Christ is not truly and essentially God, but only possesses more and greater gifts and glory than other people. They hold other similar articles, but they are divided into many parties among themselves, with one party holding more and another party holding fewer errors. The entire sect, however, can be characterized as basically nothing else than a new kind of monkery. Erroneous Articles of the Schwenkfelders We reject and condemn these errors of the Schwenkfelders. One, in the first place, that no one has a true knowledge of Christ, the reigning King of Heaven, who believes that according to the flesh, or according to his assumed human nature, Christ is a creature. They also teach that through the exaltation, Christ's flesh assumed all the divine properties in such a way that in might, in power, in majesty, and in glory, he is in every way equal in grade and rank of essence to the Father and the eternal word, so that the two natures of Christ have but one kind of essence, property, will, and glory, so that Christ's flesh belongs to the essence of the Holy Trinity. 2. That the ministry of the church, the word proclaimed and heard, is not a means whereby the Holy Spirit teaches men the saving knowledge of Christ, conversion, repentance, and faith, or works, new obedience in them. 3. That the water of baptism is not a means whereby the Lord God seals the adoption of sons and works regeneration. 4. That the bread and wine in the Holy Supper are not means through which Christ distributes his body and blood. 5. That a Christian who is truly born again through the Spirit of God is able to keep and fulfill the law of God perfectly in this life. 6. That a congregation in which public expulsion or orderly process of excommunication does not take place 
is not a true Christian congregation. 7. That a minister of the church who is himself not truly renewed, righteous, and pious cannot teach profitably nor administer genuine and true sacraments. Erroneous Articles of the New Arians We reject and condemn the error of the New Arians who teach that Christ is not a true, essential, and natural God of one eternal divine essence with God the Father, but only adorned with divine majesty inferior to and alongside the Father. Erroneous Articles of the New Anti-Trinitarians 1. Some Anti-Trinitarians reject and condemn the old approved symbols, the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, both as to content and terminology, and instead teach that there is not one eternal divine essence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that as there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so also each person has a distinct essence separate from the other two. Some teach that all three persons in the Trinity, like any three distinct and essentially separate human persons, have the same power, wisdom, majesty, and glory, while others teach that the three persons in the Trinity are unequal in their essence and properties. So they were basically polytheists. And two, that only the Father is genuinely and truly God. All these and similar articles and whatever attaches to them or follows from them, we reject and condemn as false, erroneous, heretical, contrary to the word of God, to the three creeds, to the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, to the small-called articles, to Luther's catechisms. All pious Christians will and should avoid these as dearly as they love their soul's welfare and salvation. Therefore, in the presence of God and of all Christendom, among both our contemporaries and our posterity, we wish to have uh, testified that the present explanation of all the foregoing controverted articles here explained, and none other, is our teaching, belief, and confession, in which, by God's grace, we shall appear with intrepid hearts before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and for which we shall give an account. Nor shall we speak or write anything privately or publicly contrary to this confession, but we intend, through God's grace, to abide by it. In view of this, we have advisedly, in the fear and invocation of God, subscribed our signatures with our own hands. Dr. James Andriai subscribed. Dr. Nicholas Selnecker, subscribed. Dr. Andrew Musculus, subscribed. Dr. Christopher Coroner, subscribed. David um, Catreus and Dr. Martin Chemnitz. Woo! And that is it for the entirety of the Formula of Concord. Sorry again for the massive delay. Um, I hope you all can understand. It's been a very, very busy time here. I don't even have time to fully edit this audio here to clean it up a bit so I apologize if it's a little unprofessional but I did finally want to get this out to you guys so that we can hear some of the big other key differences between Lutherans and well what is not Lutheran anyway until then I would love it if you sent me an email very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com for suggestions as to the next audiobook series that we should do until then God bless you Amen and Amen.